Welcome back or welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I am your host. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy, and I help spiritual adventurers remember who they are and why they're here so they can up-level with ease. And today, my guest Sarah Nannan is super inspiring. She was widowed at a young age. I'll tell you more about her in a second. But she doesn't live in that victim state. She is a super sparkly human being. And you will hear that in her voice and in her words and in her brilliance and her energy. And she is such a great reminder. We all go through stuff, hard stuff in life. That's what it's all about. Well, it's not what it's all about, but it's a big part of life. It's got its ups and downs. And we get to choose how we respond to it. You catch that? We get to choose how we respond to it. We can lead with our wound. We can cling to our wounds. We can let it define us, let it identify us, let it be our everything. Or we can simply let it be a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle and allow ourselves to be our true essence, to know who we really truly are, to know how we're really truly supposed to serve the world, and to do that, to lead with that. Sarah certainly does not lead with her wound. She is a brilliant sparkly individual and I'm so excited to share her with all of you. She is a keynote speaker, empowerment coach, and the author of the best-selling book, Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. Sarah became a military widow and solo mom of four young children in 2014 when her husband died in an aviation accident. Her journey through grief opened her eyes to a renegade way of living life, beyond just surviving the ride that now informs her work with people breaking through limitation to live extraordinary lives. Through live events and coaching programs, Sarah guides those in painful life transitions to identify and sustainably integrate the life of their dreams into reality. My friends, open your hearts and your ears, soak this one in and go forth and be awesome. Love you. I want you to talk more about, you said the phrase radical ownership of our mm. lives, which I adore. What does that mean for you? Radical ownership is really about getting curious about our experience and responding to it accordingly. And I know that sounds kind of like floofy, but we really live in a world where we feel like we're victims of our circumstances whether it's our schedule is too full, we have too many kids, our boss is mean, our body is sick, like whatever the things are that are happening in our lives, we feel at the mercy of the circumstances. And when we can get really, really honest and look at where those circumstances are coming from and why and what our bodies and minds need as a result of what we're experiencing, we can really change our life experience it's easier maybe to talk about it in terms of like I have a headache and when I have a headache is your action plan to pop enough Motrin to make it go away or at least make the symptoms go away so you don't know it's there or is it to stop and go whoa I have a headache right now and I haven't had any water to drink yet today and I also only slept three hours last night so let me prioritize water intake for the rest of the day and rearrange my evening so that I can go to bed super early and like prioritize sleep tonight in response to 
the symptom of headache pain that I'm feeling. So radical ownership is really tender curiosity in evaluating the source of the pain and what you, what dynamic action you can take in response to it to give it what it needs to alleviate. We've made pain to this weird monster that just like we're at the mercy of. And what it really is meant to be is like an inner indicator of a system imbalance, whether it's our body or our heart. And when we can take radical ownership of the response to what we're sensing as pain, it's amazing what kind of healing happens and, and the ease that we experience life with too along the way. Yeah, that pain can be like a little kid tugging on your pant leg, like mom, 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 mom. You just numb the little kid, right? One of my yoga teachers talks about it like a yellow light, or like there's a car indicator, and for a long time there's a yellow light on. Like it's a little tweaky pain, it's a little twingy pain, it's a little bit there. And if you ignore it long enough, it'll get a little louder and a little brighter, and then it turns into a red light. And so he's always like, can we acknowledge the pain when it's a whisper, when it's a yellow light, before it ever turns into the big flared up red light when we're an extremist, and then it's an emergency. It's amazing when we pay that level of attention and take radical ownership before it's a level 10 crisis, how much easier life can be. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in my stubborn experience, it it took so much trial and error to get to that point of listening to the little whispers. It took an experiment of being like, okay, okay, I'm going to see what happens if I listen at this point. And you know what? It was awesome. <laughs> like it was a little ankle niggle. It took a week off running and then it was all better all by itself. And it makes sense that we do it this way. I mean, nobody is wrong. Everybody's trying their best to be awesome in life. And we're taught, right? No pain, no gain. We're told to keep calm and carry on and stay strong and fake it till you make it. Like, it's there, you get a badge of honor for running a marathon with a hurting knee. I mean, people are like, whoa, that's amazing that you did that with that injury. But really, it's like, why are we celebrating people's? commitment to overriding their systemic alarm system to accomplish something that maybe like could have waited until you were healthy because what's going to happen to that knee after running 26 miles yeah exactly you just ran 26.2 miles and now you can't walk for months right so i mean i think we got to give ourselves on the one hand a break and say like yeah we've been taught since the beginning of time to keep it to ourselves to just show up and like power through. And can we all get a little more radical in our ownership of that? And like, I'm not, I'm no longer willing to ignore the warning signs. Yeah. And I think, okay. What's just come up for me is I remember as a kid, as a competitive swimmer, I had knee problems and I remember I was from camp counselor once commenting on that like I feel like it was a comment home I don't even know if they did that but something about like Kelsey does really well like you'd have no idea that she's in pain mm-hmm. and I hadn't thought of that until right now but as an athlete and as a human there's there are so many different types of pain and as an athlete you you like you put yourself through it can be considered pain the suffering that you, well, yeah, there's a lot of discomfort to the training plan. Exactly. Like, you know, you're teaching your muscles to sustain a certain level of high output that is not always comfortable. Like it burns. That's real. 
Exactly. But it's not about ignoring that. It's about feeling that. The same thing as like when you step on stage, there's that like, you know, fluttering that you might feel. And it's about acknowledging or that. To throw up entirely. It's exactly. Like, or just want to run away and like go hide under a rock. Mm-hmm. There's, but like, we need to, to feel that, to say, hi, I see you. And reconnect and reground and show up even better. And I think, you know, I love that you had that memory of getting an act, like your worth was enhanced because of your willingness yeah. to compete and tolerate a, thir- a certain threshold of pain. And I think what we forget is that if you had checked in, dealt with it, healed it, how much better would your performance have been because you were operating healed at a hundred percent instead of doing your best to override the pain and trudge on with it. It's such a great metaphor for all things in life. I mean, I'm sure people listening right now can think of a time where somebody said, it's so amazing that you're doing X, that you're showing up to work two days after you had a baby. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, think about it. We really celebrate people who override their basic human needs to perform or get the job done. And I think it's like a great invitation for us all to reevaluate, like, where am I doing that? And how can I stop? And what would be possible if I did? God, there's so many places that that shows up. Wow. You're here and you only got three hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you guys, how about we sleep more? How about we celebrate? Hey, you're here and you got nine hours of sleep last night. Way to go, rock star. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it goes way back to that idea of self-sacrifice, right? That we've been taught, you know, I mean, as women, but I think it applies to all humans in general. Like how many ways are you able and willing to self-sacrifice on behalf of your family, on behalf of your workplace, on behalf of your team? And again, it's like, even though that looks great on paper, how much more could you show up for your family or for your workplace or for your team if you weren't sacrificing your well-being in the name of showing up? You know, what, like what becomes possible with your level of presence and focus and creativity and leadership in your family or your business or your team when you're full, when your cup is full, when your life is full, when your systems are full? And that's been a huge I mean, relearning, unlearning for me, I've my whole life been an overachieving, overperforming, excellence seeking in all things person. It showed up as much in my career as a naval officer as it showed up in my life as a mother. And in the last half a decade, I've really been focused on unlearning those old ways of doing and being. And it's amazing how much more productive and creative and even capable of joy I am because of it, right? There's no more resentment because I'm not coming to all of these amazing things in a state of depletion. Yeah. Way to bring up the resentment piece that when we're like, so when we're sacrificing bits of ourselves, we may not realize how resentful we are of we make up these stories that it's all someone else's fault, Mm -hmm. but it's really the conscious choice or maybe not conscious, but the choice that we made put ourselves at the bottom of the list. 
And the resentment is actually a really great systemic indicator that there's a problem, right? I think constant frustration, chronic resentment, and anger, all three of those things are like screaming at us to let us know that we need to reevaluate what's really just boundaries yeah. with ourselves more than other people even a lot of the time, right? What are my boundaries with my time and my energy? Mm-hmm. What am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? Then there's like a whole nother layer of boundaries involving other people that you've got to communicate to them because now they've got this expectation that you're the person who will stay till 9 p.m. every night. And when you change your personal policy about staying till only 6.30 because that's what they're paying you for, not till 9, they're going to have pushback because it was working really well for them to violate your well-being on behalf of their needs. And so it's, anyway, the, the resentment piece, it's great. When, if you have resentment right now and you're listening and you know that there's a person or an entity that you're resenting or just a weekly activity, like reevaluate how you're engaging with that because if that thing doesn't have to go, you might just have to change how you're doing it or how much you're doing it or when you're doing it. And so thank you, resentment, for showing up. It's like this beautiful thing that gets our attention. Thank you, anger, for showing me that I've got to make a shift in how I'm showing up. I feel like it can be really helpful when dealing with resentment and boundaries, especially boundaries with herself, to ask ourselves, what are our non-negotiables? Mm-hmm. Like Actually write those down. And then it's really easy, can be really easy, when someone asks us, or we ask ourselves to do something and, oh, is that going to leave room for all of these non-negotiables? Nope. Well, then it's a no. So I like to do the same thing, but in the inverse where I have, um, I have a personal policy. There's, when you go to work for a company, you get a personnel policy and it tells you how the personnel are supposed to operate within the organization. So I have a personal policy, how I operate within my own life. And it comes to do with things like how I schedule airplane trips because I travel for work. There are things that I'm not willing to do. So does this flight fit into my personal policy? No, then I shift to a different one. So I like to be really clear about what I do want and, and what works for me. And then I know when it doesn't fall within that parameter that it's an easy no and I reevaluate to a different choice. I love that. I haven't written mine down around travel. I know them so clearly. <laughs> But I have not written those down. You got to write them down. Otherwise, it's so easy to violate them. Yeah. And my mom's a travel agent. And um, so she books all of our travel. And she's constantly trying to violate my, <laughs> my like, policies for travel. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want that flight. That doesn't work for me. So. Yeah. Write it down. It'll make it easier for her, too. Yeah. I mean, smart. it's everything. It's sleep. You know, what time do you get up? What time do you go to bed? Well, that thing is going to be later that night. So if I'm going to choose that, then you know what's happening the next day. I'm clearing it. Yep. Yeah. Right? If so, I'm not in bed by nine, the next day, sorry, <laughs> we're not, not, not doing nothing's anything. Nothing's on the schedule. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's so important. And that's, again, it goes back to that, like being a victim of our circumstances and being at the mercy of our schedule, which I think is like the new American dream is just like, if you're at the mercy of your schedule, you're doing something right. And I want to just call BS on that and say like, let's back up and schedule intentionally. You can do the same things, but schedule it a different way so that it actually works for you. And you can get yourself out of survival mode and into living. Yes. Oh, I hear all the time. So I haven't been in a, an office job for many years. I don't know. 
since 2006, 2005. And, but I hear now of people that I'll just, they'll have to cancel something because, oh, I got scheduled for a meeting at that time. Mm-hmm. That personally sounds like the worst thing that can ever happen. Somebody else scheduling me for something. Sure. I mean, there's a huge um, industry now that's all about corporate work life and there are big successful companies that are really paying attention to like, what are we asking of our people and how do we schedule them and how do we operate? You know, there's a lot of four day work week stuff happening now and um, people are taking standing desks into consideration. And, you know, like I love that this is coming online as um, corporations understand that while it's still about profit as the bottom line, their company's going to do better if their people do better we're still taking the human resource component into consideration. That person's going to work much better if they have a comfortable desk and if they have an outdoor space where they can be with nature so they can be creatively nurtured and inspired. And if we have, you know, one day a week where they get to be off with their families and we have a really good parental leave policy. I mean, I love that this is becoming the new norm. It hasn't like gone full mainstream yet but like i think there's a lot of great companies on the cutting edge of really bringing this into light so for you out there who doesn't have that and you're like well that must be nice i mean let's reevaluate your life and look for a company that is doing that so that you can get a job that takes your well-being into account because again like that's giving up into the victim mentality and saying like well my company doesn't care about me well guess what that sounds a lot like resentment which is a warning sign that you got to do like take radical ownership of your life and make a change all of this discomfort comes back to what are you going to do about it Mm. let's just say that again what are you going to do about it i mean not from like a challenging place but like an invitation yeah what do you actually want what do you want your work life to be like do you know Because so many of the people that I help through painful life transitions say, I don't know what I want. I just don't want this. So let's start with getting clarity. What do you want? And once you know what you want, it's a lot easier to find a company that's doing that. And there's there's steps along the once you start with the not this. Mm -hmm. Then there's the, I believe in that like this, but not this. We did that as we traveled around the country trying to figure out where to live next. There were quite a few places where you're like, like this, but not this. Mm-hmm. So when you figure that out, you can write down what are the little pieces of this that make it you want something like this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes along with that, which is such a great little exercise, again, we often, I go into like, what don't you want? Let's make a really comprehensive list of what don't you want, what's not working for you. And sometimes it's easier to just like, what's the opposite of that? And you're like, oh, that's what I want. And sometimes we're so afraid to articulate that because what gets in the way of that is believing that it's possible. We don't even want to write it down or say it out loud because we don't believe it's possible or we don't know how we're going to get that or how we're going to experience that or how we're going to afford that. And I always say, let's leave the how out of it and get clear on the what because the how gets revealed along the way. So yeah, I love this. Not this, but like this. That's such a cool thing that I hadn't um, done before. I love that. And I also feel like you can ask somebody else to hold the vision for you. Mm. If you're afraid, if you're getting tangled up in the how, to instead be like, hey, Sarah, 
this is what I want. It terrifies me. Can you hold this for me while I mm-hmm. just freak out over here or do whatever I got to do, deal with this little bit of healing or whatever piece of oh, yeah. I think you're right in any, in any transformative moment, and this can feel positive or negative in your lovely human brain. You'll want to apply good or bad words to it. But like in any transformative moment, it's hard to hold whatever it is on your own. And I think we all need somebody who can have a honest, compassionate witness of whatever we're experiencing, whether it's fears being realized or hopes being born. Those are both often really terrifying for us to be with and to, to shift with. And I love that idea of asking somebody to hold it for you. But I I guess in my mind, um, going back to that radical ownership piece, what I would say about that is that let's ask somebody to hold it with us Mm. because I want to encourage you to take, keep ownership of that almost unfathomable dream. I actually had one of my clients this week on a group call who emailed me ahead of time. was like, I would like to unpack this with you first. And I was like, I'm going to hold space for you to make this declaration to the group. And so she did, but she used non-possessive words. And she was talking about how her body wanted something instead of how she wanted something. And so I acknowledged what she said. And I said, could you try using a different like sentence that starts with I want? And she did. And and then she was like, oh my God, that felt so good to say it out loud to a group of people who just heard it. Everybody else was muted. I thanked her for sharing it. We went on with the call. And so sometimes we just need somebody who can hold compassionate witness for us to say the thing out loud so that it can be on the outside of us. Because when it's stuck in our brain, we like dissect it and we analyze it and we turn it into something that it's not. So I love like public decoration, declarations of accountability. And I also love really intentionally done vision boards for the same thing. You can put the vision on the outside of you, the thing that you do want to experience. And it's somehow making it tangible that way, expressed that way, makes it so much more accessible to move toward. What is it about the phrase, I want, that can be so scary? Why is that scary for us? We're, I think we, and I'm going to use we as humans, but I know that it's super pervasive in women. We're much more prohibited around desire. We're so afraid of owning desire. Desire has been stripped of us. Pleasure has been eradicated from acceptable cultural norms. I don't know when it happened. I mean, the guess is like the Puritans are probably to blame. Like, it seems like a lot of really cool stuff went away when they... <laughs> We're uh, it's like they wrecked a lot of things. Yeah. Um, no offense, Puritans out there. Thank you. Love you. But my relatives. It's okay. There, there's like a really pervasive, long-standing cultural belief system, cultural structure that has made, if anything, pleasure and desire into a luxury that only lucky people or rich people or bad people. And those are not all the same thing necessarily, but for some people it will feel like the same thing, but only those people get to have. And the rest of us living in the American dream who have to work really hard to make it, like those are prohibited. And then you apply spirituality or religion to it. And then there's like this sin word that gets put on top of it. And I think there's this really amazing movement that we're seeing happening that's coming back in where people are starting to take ownership of their desire 
and ownership of pleasure and ownership of self-expression and being willing to be misunderstood and judged and misrepresented because it's worth it. It's radical ownership. Once again, it's being this autonomous human who's got the right to desire and who has like the innate capacity to experience pleasure and really like life is full of hard stuff. So if we're not going to have some pleasure along the way, I'm not sure really like we're missing the point if we're eliminating pleasure from our vocabulary and experience along the way. I mean, pleasure has so many forms. So we're not speaking just about like sexual intimacy. This is the simple pleasure of sitting on your porch with the sun on your face for seven minutes, just because it's there and it feels so good. It doesn't have to be about expensive treatments at the spa or um, lavish jewelry. I mean, I think when we get really, really honest with pleasure, it's about like the most basic primal experiences of how good that bite of apple crisp tastes when you pop it out of the oven, you know, like, Oh, it's such good pleasure that everybody can experience. And I think when we're in pain, when we're in survival mode, when we're suffering and feeling like a victim in our own life, it's so hard for us to remember that we still have access to that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And it doesn't negate the pain, but also the pain doesn't negate the possibility of experiencing even small moments of pleasure. That was well said. You know, you just said a lot of peas in there, and I would like to celebrate the fact that you said that so smoothly. <laughs> I'm impressed. Thanks. And I completely agree with you. Pleasure and pain can coexist. Sadness and joy mm-hmm. can coexist. And when we follow the joy, when we allow ourselves to follow and fall into and love and be in love with what lights us up. We are so sparkly. Mm -hmm. Our energy becomes so magnetic and electric and people want to be around us, including our desires want to be around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what's really important to name in there, because people who are entrenched in pain are going to be like, yeah, sparkly, great for you. I'm suffering. So have fun with your sparkle because I'm dying over here. And one of the tools I really like to teach people is, can you acknowledge all your pain? And can you also learn to look for, see, and experience ease and joy too? Not holding onto the pain, not worried about it going away, but also like, all right, all this pain is here. Is there also a little bit of light, a little bit of ease, a little bit of joy. And they're amazed about how much they can see when they open up their radar lens to like let that come in too. And do you know what happens when you do that? The pain gets a lot more bearable because there's also ease and joy alongside of it. And I think we've been duped into thinking we have to pick one or the other, or we can only experience one or the other. And, you know, I, I remember so viscerally this moment, like three months after my husband died in 2014, I was having um, Mexican food with one of my best friends who I hadn't seen since it happened. And we were drinking these big margaritas with our whatever tacos. And we were laughing and we were crying. We were telling all the stories. She had known us for a long time. And I took a selfie of us and I was like, there's no way that I can post this on Facebook because I'm not allowed to be laughing and drinking margaritas. My husband just died. 
But what this picture doesn't encapsulate is like the range of human emotion and grief and sadness and tears and gratitude and reflection and remembrance that is all happening. People just see pleasure and it feels somehow like a false representation that's going to get me a lot of shame and judgment. So I didn't. I'm so mad. I should have because it was such a good moment. But I think, you know, it's like, let me just share that little piece of my story and can anybody else who's listening recognize a moment in their life where they were having a midst, like a moment of pleasure and connection and joy right in and alongside a moment of pain and how we maybe filter that out. What doesn't help is when we filter it out because then other people don't know that it's a real or allowed. And so the more we make grief and pain into an and experience, right? It's not just this, it's grief and living. You're still alive while you're grieving. They're both happening at the same time. Yes. So grief is a part of living. Well, yeah. I mean, how could you experience grief otherwise? And what does, like, what precedes grief? Mm. Deep, likely deep joy, deep connection, deep love, right? Because we're grieving something that contributed significantly to our sense of self, our identity, and our experience of life. And so whether it's someone died, you got a divorce. I mean, people grieve having a baby. People grieve their bodies getting ill. There's so many different parts of the human experience that we grieve transitions life transitions there's always grief involved yes and it's so much easier to understand what grief is when we really look at it from an indigenous perspective because the mayan shaman martin Prechtel talks about grief as gratitude and grief as praise and in other cultures it's really this loud messy wailing in the mud expression emotion of gratitude. Thank you so much for existing. Thank you for what this allowed me to experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know how to be without this yet. I don't know what happens as a result of this yet. It feels big and scary and overwhelming. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what has been. I love that. Where did the Western idea of grief come from? feel like we're going to be blaming the Puritans a lot. I don't know if it's their fault, but I think a lot of like the institution of religion as a whole has really attempted to dictate human behavior, human emotion, and our reaction to life. It's kind of created this control mechanism of like the appropriate way to behave. I hate that word appropriate, the appropriate way to behave. And so what it's unfortunately done, and this is not a slam against religion, but really a call to like consider what, like why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe. It's required us to sanitize our human experience. And so we've, we put on a stoic face or a happy face to go to the funeral. And then we wail alone in our closet at midnight right? Like we've separated ourselves into two selves, the self that's for human consumption and the self that's our inner reality. And when we have such a profound rift between our outer self and our inner self, it feels a lot like dying, which might also be called depression, right? Because there's this like confusion in our system of who we are and who we're allowed to be. And we spend all of our energy in survival mode, once again, like trying to just like go from guilt to shame to fear of judgment and like make it out unscathed. And when we can just get really loving and curious about the truth of our inner world 
and express it in healthy ways that take emotional boundaries and personal relationships into consideration fully. It's amazing how healing that rift within ourself and the way we express it on the outside just changes our entire life experience. The image I just got, as you were saying that, is I feel like it allows us to stitch ourselves back together. Absolutely. Become one again as as our soul wants us to be, as our bodies and mind want us to be. Absolutely. And even bigger than that, I mean, I think people have like a really profound catalyst moment in their life that like it's the big grief moment. But what that does is it really allows us access to all of the older or smaller or both grief moments along the way that also created a a rift in our sense of self and in the way that we expressed it and the way that we even experienced the world around us as a result of that. And it allows us to access all of that. And what I find so often is people will come work with me because a parent died or, you know, they've, they've experienced some traumatic loss in their life, many, many forms. And we spend so much time talking not about that thing and about a lot of things that came before it. And it's so beautiful to watch their understanding of the way they experience the reality that's happening around them shift as they begin to reconnect with all of the pieces of themselves that they left behind along the way in the name of surviving. Mm. So the event, the traumatic event for them is, I mean, I think you used the word catalyst, and that's what it is. It's the catalyst that puts them back together. If they take radical ownership Mm. of that moment. And unfortunately we live in a world that like, we don't know that's the thing to do. People say time heals all like just wait for enough time to pass. It'll get better with time. And then, you know, there's, terrible advice like get a hobby get a job stay busy get a dog get a boyfriend that'll fix it everybody wants to just like fill the holes with other stuff to make it go away and really it's like here's the invitation to turn toward yourself and understand what you're experiencing so you can process this transformation that's happening and sustainably integrate back into your life in a meaningful way And I know that seems hard and scary, so let me show you how to do that. Let me be beside you while you figure out where to put your next step so that every day you can be be taking micro steps in the direction of the future self that you want to become. Mm. When people are in grief, are they able to see the future self that they want to become? No. And that's what I was talking about earlier. You know, when you ask people like, what do you, what do you want? What's your goal for, you know, working with somebody, getting support? I don't know. I just don't want to feel this anymore. I mean, most people, they can articulate that like, it can't be this way forever. Something's got to change, right? This feels too small. My, my moment of taking beginning action was the answer, asking the question, is this really all there is now? is this it? Like, is this the best I can hope for? And I didn't want the answer to be yes. And how long after your husband died was that? I would say that journey began probably like 10 to 12 months. And it was really baby steps in the beginning. I mean, just like looking up from the rubble of my life and being like, oh, all of this is happening around me right now. I had no idea all you people were out here like living and doing stuff. Let me just like start re-engaging a little bit. It, it takes a while. And I mean, to each his own timeline, for sure. 
But at some point when you begin to have that like inner angst of like, is this all there is? There's gotta be more than this to life. What's the point otherwise? That's when you know it's time to re-engage. And, and the only way to really do it is with a guide because we're so in survival mode that our, you know, our brains aren't actually capable of an elegant solution or even envisioning a beautiful second best kind of life. And so we sort of just numb ourselves out and stay where we are because that's, we think that's what we think is possible. Well, this is just how it is now. I mean, I'm a widow or I'm divorced and nobody will love me or I only have one leg or I got cancer. So this is just how it is now. I mean, even people are like, well, you just, we're just getting old. That's just how it is. And when I hear people say that I cringe because I can hear them just kind of throwing their hands up in submission be like, yeah, what you going to do? And I'm like, do you want to actually know the answer to that? I would love to tell you how many really simple, even free things that you can do to change the way you're experiencing your daily life and the non-existent future that you're hoping for. But when you hope, you've got to take dynamic action on behalf of that hope and dream so that you can actually sustainably integrate it into your reality at some point. Otherwise, you're right. Nothing will ever change mm-hmm. unless you do something about it. What are you going to do about it? Back to that question, right? Yeah. I lo- when you say, what are you going to do about it? Sarah, I picture you standing at the the entrance of like a really beautiful beach house Mm. opening the door and saying, what are you going to do about it? Well, I love that you have that vision because I run retreats all the time to help people (laughs) answer that question. Right. And part of what I teach them is to move beyond that survival stage so that they can even start considering the answer to the, what are you going to do about it question? Mm. I mean, that's what I love doing in the world is helping people get out of this feeling of stuck and surrender like this is all this is just what it is i'm settling here and i'm gonna wait for something better but kind of resigning myself to the reality that this is just how it is now what lights you up so much about that because i really truly believe that anything is possible and i lived this I mean, I was literally the person who was like, well, I'm a single mother of four young kids, five and under. I'm 32. Like, ain't nobody ever going to love me. So I better just buckle up and get ready for a crappy, scraped together, second best kind of life with no love story. And I'm going to be like the weird old lady widow who nobody likes and nobody talks to, who's a little creepy and lives at the end of the woods and might be like eating people's children. Like, I just had this like... Were you going to have like 18 cats too? Yeah, probably. I'm sure. Yeah. I had this horrible fairy tale image of what it meant to be a widow. And part of what I had to do along the way was dismantle that false identity that I had created that was like in my mind, true and real from the moment I found out, I was like, Oh, I feel like I'm getting a little haggard already. Like my fingers are shriveling up just hearing that, like the horrible news. I could feel my entire essence of self adjusting to fit my idea of the identity that I had now. And so I really had to reclaim myself from the process in the process, I should say. And reevaluate what I believed was real for myself and possible for myself. And it took tiny micro steps in the direction of a tiny dream. And then 
the dream was realized, which allowed me to expand into a bigger dream and a bigger dream and a bigger dream and a bigger dream. And I started to figure out that the more clarity I got about who I was, what I valued and what I wanted to experience and contribute in life, the more quickly that it all happened and I was able to receive it. And people use the word manifesting a lot. I don't love that word because I think it gets really contorted and people get confused about what's happening. But the clarity around what you do want, what you desire to experience and do and have and contribute makes it so much more easy for you to actually have it, do it, become it. And until we're willing to get curious about who we are and what we want, it's not going to happen. You've done so much work on yourself since the day you became a widow. Do you still find little bits of that story about what it means to be a widow? No, I don't. But what I do find are new bits of story in the residue of my psyche that I didn't know were there. And that's really like this whole experience has opened me up to knowing all of the shadow and all of the limiting beliefs and all the fears that are like wedged in my cells that like come out to play every once in a while and I get another chance to solve and resolve them or work with them or understand them better. Like, oh, that's a new layer of that same story that I thought that I had kind of figured out. But there was this little thing over here that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, we're all in a constant experience of self-discovery if we're paying attention. And so I'm, every time something comes up, I like lean forward and lean in with anticipation because I know on the other side of that discomfort and self-inquiry, there's this huge sense of freedom and spaciousness that comes. Yeah. I love talking. I love this conversation and I love that you just said that. I think, I know there are a lot of people out there that are probably like, what are you talking about? Because I think you and I are the weirdos that get really excited when we discover something like that. Because we oh, know- I wasn't always that way for sure. <laughs> yeah, there was the time of like, oh, oh shit, better keep that hidden. Mm-hmm. Well, and that goes back to what we were talking about of the radical ownership. And I think part of like the people who are like, what are you talking about? It sucks when you have painful crap and triggers come up. I don't want that. Um, it's part of the reason is because they don't know what to do with it. And like you said, we stuff it down and we try to make it go away and we try to ignore it and we try to like pretend it away. And the reason that I lean in eagerly now is because I always have a coach who's helping me with my stuff. I have a whole bunch of tools and perspectives and practices that I can turn to. So in those moments, I can support myself and feel 100% empowered to move through it. I didn't always feel that way. And that was writhing around a discomfort and numbing it out with whatever numbing technique of choice that I had at my sleeve or at my fingertips that day. And um, that, yeah, there's a lot of discomfort there. And so for people who are like, I don't want to feel this stuff. It's an invitation to say like, what if there was an actionable path to healing and freedom that you could move through this in a matter of minutes or hours, or even a couple of days instead of over months or years or never. And that's worth it to me to in minutes, hours, or days, get to that sense of freedom and spaciousness instead of adding another thing to my backpack of shit to carry through life. Yeah, and you don't have to do it alone. Oh, I don't think you can. And the reason I say that is because before I was a coach and after I was a naval officer, I was a birth doula in the middle there. 
And what I got to do was stand beside women who are in labor, which I think everyone will probably agree to is one of the hardest things that you can experience as a human being, even if you're not a female identifying human, like you'll, you'll give it, you'll give that to us. And um, what's really amazing is the different experiences people had based on the informational, emotional, and physical support that they had at their side or not. And that goes back to that concept of pain or suffering. We can be in discomfort and be totally okay there because we're empowered, because we have a voice in our experience, because we have a compassionate witness by our side, or we can be suffering, which is excruciating. And the difference is literally taking radical ownership of the experience and like pulling the resources in. And not everybody has access to all the resources, but everybody has access to some of the basic resources, like starting every day with a couple minutes or a couple seconds of slow, deep breathing and drinking enough water and getting enough sleep and saying no to stuff that you resent and saying yes to stuff that lights you up. Like we can all do this. We might have to change some of our patterns but we can all do this stuff. It doesn't require financial abundance. It doesn't require special, like I moved internationally with four kids, one of whom was a newborn five days after my husband died. So like, I get it, I get survival mode, it's real. It's real intense. And we can all take radical ownership of what our experience is next. But it's hard to do without somebody to help you. Like I didn't do that in a vacuum. I had coaches and I had healers and I had body workers and I had teachers and I had friends. None of us do any of this alone. We're not meant to. And I think that's part of where the pain comes from is we pretend we think we're supposed to be able to do it alone. And when we can't, we have shame and that makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Ever since that day we're celebrated for tying our shoes all by ourselves. We feel like we've got to do it all by ourselves always. Mm -hmm. I mean, my partner even now just reminds me probably daily, like, you're not alone. You don't have to do any of this alone. And all I need you to do is ask. And I'm so happy to help, not to rescue you, but like to partner you, like to carry the load with you, which yeah. is what we agreed to do. And I have to constantly remember to surrender into the receptivity of receiving that gift of what it is to have help, whether it's from him or my mom or my coach or the stranger who's offering to help me load my groceries into my car. How many of us are like, Oh no, I've got it. Thank you. Like what if we just started saying yes, whenever people offered help to us, that was something I learned as a new mom. My doula told me whenever somebody offers to bring you food or asks you how they can help, tell them something they can do to help. Cause you know what? They're going to do it. And they'll ask you again. If you say no, they'll stop asking. This is, this is brilliant. If you receive the help that people offer, they will offer the help again, which means you get help. It's brilliant. So for anybody out there who's like, I'm all alone, nobody's helping me, like, how, like even just letting somebody open the door for you, you know? Oh, no, I've got it. I have totally rewired my response. I'm like, thank you so much for holding the door for me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will receive that. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, I'm, yes. Just yes. We have so much help everywhere we look. 
And we're so hyper-programmed into not receiving it that we miss it. And everything gets so much better when we're able to just say, yes, please, and thank you. Mm -hmm. And that goes for, that goes for words. It doesn't just go for opening doors and Mm. carrying groceries and receiving food. Yeah. Receive the compliments. Yes. Yes. Oh, receiving compliments is a whole nother thing. What a great spiritual practice that is. Isn't it? That's, yeah, that's the new rule. If someone compliments you, you say, thank you. And then there's an implied period. You do not continue talking. Just thank you. You don't have to qualify it. You don't have to justify it. Just thank you. Receive. That in that implied period, I like to challenge people to say, I know in your head. (laughs) Somebody says, your words are powerful and brilliant. Thank you. I know. (laughs) I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Radical ownership. There it is. Right under our noses. Sarah, you, your words are powerful and brilliant and you are such a bright sparkly light. Thank you. I know. (laughs) Yes. I'm doing it. You are. How can people learn more about you, work with you, all of the things? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And if it's okay, since we're talking about moving through tough times and transitions, I would really love to just help people get started in a super supportive way and offer them a free meditation for peace that I created that people can just like, after this, they can go download it, pop in their earbuds and just like find some of that inner calm that we're talking about and take that first step forward into taking radical ownership of their everyday experience. So if that's something that they're interested in grabbing, my website is sarahnanen.com. It's N-A-N-N-E-N.com forward slash meditation. Just go there, grab that. And you've got this amazing resource to help you find some, yes, please, pocket of peace in the midst of whatever's coming up in your life. Mm. How long is the meditation? It's a a long one. It's like 15, 20 minutes, but kind of life-changing. So like great for bedtime, great for waking up, great for like, I need to go lock myself in the office closet for 12 minutes to be alone. Mm -hmm. Super helpful. Yeah. Perfect. And I'll put that link in the show notes. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful soul. Thank you. Thank you. This was a beautiful conversation and um, I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and talk about all of these amazing things. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.